Back it up, back it up. Let's dump this truck. Back it up, back it up. Let's dump this truck. 7 a.m. Hello and welcome to Bad Romance. I'm Jordan Searles. And I'm Bronwyn Isaac. And this week we are doing a movie that truly doesn't exist, really. Uh, it's 2013's Austin Land, written and directed by Jerusha Hess, who is the wife and collaborator of Jared Hess, who created Napoleon Dynamite, Gentleman Broncos, Masterminds, that entire kind of thing. It's her husband is responsible for it. And this is the first film that she has made entirely by herself. Like her husband gets a producing credit and so does Stephanie Meyer um, on this film. But, uh, and it's, (laughs) yeah, that, that makes sense. (laughs) So it's a, the screenplay was adapted from with, with Shannon Hale from her novel, Austin land. And uh, apparently Shannon Hale is friends with Stephanie Meyer, which is why Stephanie Meyer helped produce this movie. And I, I don't really know anything about the book. I've heard that it's, I've heard that it's fun. I've heard that it's, you know, lovely. It's like a beach read. This movie is not lovely. It's, Kind of like nothing. It's it's yeah. like experience. It's like staring directly into a void. There's just there's really nothing. He- like okay, so uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm still like reeling. I watched it last night. I'm still reeling from the fact that it does in fact exist, and I did in fact watch it. And and both of those facts are true because, like you said, it is like staring into an abyss, and you're waiting for for something anything to cling on to yeah there's just nothing to hold on to it was funny because i was watching it with kyle and he thought it was funny and i was just like you think it's funny because you have no respect for jane austen and then the whole rest of us watching it was just him being like i don't hate jane austen i just find the regency era to be kind of silly and you know what so does this movie this the thing this movie thinks that the regency era is silly and that's that's one thing but if you're going to make a movie that critiques an era and, you know, the entire, all of the social commentary that comes with Jane Austen, you also have to have a degree of respect for it. Kind of like how you can't have a podcast where you talk about romantic comedies unless you have a little bit of respect for them. And this movie has no respect for Jane Austen or romantic comedies. And it kind of offends me for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it's like if our whole podcast was us just being like, oh, of course this movie sucks. It's a chick flick. Like, it feels like the amount of effort put into how the Regency era was represented and even the references to Jane Austen felt very... I. It's not that I wanted it to be... Um, a movie that only people who are into Jane Austen could watch because then it wouldn't reach as many people. But like it could have gotten more creative even with how it referenced Jane Austen or explained more to people who don't know Jane Austen. I agree with you. It feels like it was just, it was both, it it wasn't funny enough to appeal to people who want to make fun of Jane Austen fans, but it wasn't accurate or, or really just like, 
yeah, it didn't have enough substance for people who like Jane Austen and maybe like can laugh at themselves, but wanted to watch something that talked about Jane Austen. Like, uh, yeah, and I will admit to being a Darcy head. I was a Darcy head for so much of my life. But, like, so if this movie was really, really going after people who are obsessed with Pride and Prejudice and upset with Darcy, I would have been embarrassed while watching this movie. But I wasn't because I didn't believe that anyone actually cared about Pride and Prejudice at all in this movie. Especially not especially not the lead Carrie Russell. Carrie Russell plays the lead and she's a great actress, you know, Felicity, the Americans. She's, you know, waitress, one of my favorite movies. Like I like Carrie Russell. And this is the first movie where I have not liked Carrie Russell because the movie is insincere and so is her performance. And I don't feel like she's ever read a Jane Austen book either. Uh, Yeah, I feel like she, both her character and maybe her, they have the energy of somebody who read maybe Pride and Prejudice when they were 12 for a class, right? Not somebody who enjoyed it or who read multiple books. And it's not a matter of me gatekeeping this character in the movie, but that's a pretty important factor for us to even follow along with the plot because the whole point is that she's obsessed with Jane Austen and she's obsessed with Mr. Darcy. But if her character doesn't feel like someone who it's like they decorate it to make it look like that. Her room has all these decorations. She has a Mr. Darcy cutout, all these things, but her actual personality doesn't reflect it. She doesn't really have a personality. Like there's not even this like desire for a Mr. Darcy type. I think that the movie could have gone some interesting places if it kind of picked apart um, the annoying or cliche aspects of Mr. Darcy as a character. Yeah, Um, this movie does not critique Mr. Darcy. And Mr. Darcy is a very easy person to critique because the whole thing is that he, like, Lizzie Bennet is the pride, Darcy is the prejudice. And his prejudice is against lower class people who are very clearly social climbing, even though, like, he's high class and he's never had to deal with social climbing at all and lizzie has like you know a lot of pride because even though she's lower she does not have a fortune she you know she takes pride in herself she takes pride in her family and you know the whole and a big conflict is that mr darcy thinks that lizzie's sister is trying to get with his friend for the money and that's mostly just because he doesn't like their mom like so much of it is just like people being assholes based on their assumptions right and And miss like in the context of the rom-com genre one could even go so far and i think this movie could have taken this route if it had decided to go so far as to say that Mr. Darcy is a predecessor for a lot of rom-com tropes of asshole guys who make assumptions about women, don't think that they're quite as smart as them or that they deserve to be in the same career and then end up, you know, they end up being the, the love interest. And that would have been an interesting through line. (laughs) Right. That would have been an interesting through line. Like, you know, and we think about, um, Bridget Jones's diary, which is a direct adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And the way that she manages to deal with it's just like he's too she's in love with a man who is too much of a snob to be direct about it. 
and to clear up like misconceptions. And he's also so judgy because she fucked someone that he doesn't like. And there's like, it, it translates perfectly. And I don't understand how you have the entire Regency kind of thing going and you can't just play the story straight and then comment on it. But the thing is, is that they never, no one in this movie ever commits to the bit. No, no one. one, Yeah. No one, no one commits. I mean, I would argue that Jennifer Coolidge commits the most, but that's partly because her character isn't committed to the bit. And that is kind of the whole thing of her characters. She's just there because she likes to wear the dresses. Um, but I agree with you. They, they don't commit to the bit. And I kept thinking, okay, I think this movie is trying to be so overtly meta comedy, but there's not enough jokes for that. Like in order for it to be breaking all of these times, not breaking the fourth wall, but just breaking the characters and the meta characters, there needs to be a lot of really good comedy. And I mean, given that it's Jerusha Hess and, you know, you think about, Napoleon Dynamite, you think about the different brands of comedy that were being made in 2013. I think maybe there were moments in the movie where it thought it was doing a dry satire, but that wasn't what was coming across. Yeah, no, it doesn't come off dry. It comes off lazy. And you almost feel like Jerusha is trying to get the style of her husband without quite getting, and it sucks, man. Like it, it, it sucks that I have to say that it sucks that that's the, because, you know, I have always been a person where, you know, when famous male artists collaborate with their partners and wives, often their contributions get buried. You know, you can think about this with like Sandra Locke and Clint Eastwood, you know, like this, there's, there's a precedent for this and whatever was going on with Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron. Cause that was a whole fucking thing. Like there is a precedent for this. And so whenever I see, okay, so she's with, a guy who has like succeeded i mean this depends on what you think how you feel about right Jared but like is on mean, the map in this way that is right you could say yes they're on the map right and so it's like i want to be on her side just because Me i too. support this like i support her making a film that has nothing to do with him i generally because you know sometimes it's sometimes it like turns out really great like oftentimes or like even if it's like just good it tends to get like ignored like I could actually like there's like a list of directors that I can think of that are most known for being with their partners and not really like but but I've made films that are good and this isn't this isn't good and it also is like derivative of her husband and it's so I hate I know. having to say that. I, I, I feel the same way. I feel the same way because I firmly believe that one of the one of the many factors that I guess makes their that that limits women from reaching certain levels in really all industries, but specifically in film and entertainment, is not being allowed to fail. Um, there's so many male directors that have been allowed to make bad movies and then they make good movies too, right? They like you, you learn, you get better. And maybe, and in some cases, the bad movies they make that those might be so small, not many people see them. Sometimes those are big films, um, that a lot of people see and agree are bad, but they get to make more movies. Uh, women in film don't, 
are not awarded the same opportunities, or even if they continue to get the money to make movies, people don't want to watch their movies or pay attention to them because they just remember the one bad movie, right? And so I strongly feel that women should be allowed to make mediocre art and bad art because oftentimes mediocre and bad art is part of the learning process for making good art. That said, it really sucks when they do because I hate, I hate kicking a woman while she's down, right? Especially when she has a partner who has already succeeded in certain ways. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't feel. It doesn't, the, the comedic voice, one of my issues with this movie is because I do feel like it's trying to be satire and it's trying to be meta, I don't think it has a strong enough sense of its own comedic voice as a movie. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we forgot to talk about the cast because, I mean, there's so much. I mean, we got Carrie Russell. We got this actor named J.J. Field who... Um, he's like, you know, mainly like a British actor and it seems like maybe one of the, he was in the the first Captain America movie and he was in Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which is a movie that I really like. And he apparently is like been with Neve Campbell for a really long time. So good for him. He really he really lucked out with Neve Campbell. That's cute. <laughs> I love. Um, we got Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge, of course, comedy legend, known for a lot of like Christopher Guest films and for being Stifler's mom and Legally Blonde, like generally a legend. Um, Absolutely love to see her every time. And we got James Callis, who's speaking of Bridget Jones, is most known for playing one of Bridget Jones's best friends in her trilogy of films. And uh, the sci-fi channel show Eureka, which is a show that barely exists. We got Jane Seymour, which we've talked about on the podcast before because she's a legend. And uh, Georgia King, who plays the other lady who's there, who seems to who mainly does like British movies, Tanner Hall, St. Trinian's, The Duchess, One Day, that which we will do on the podcast eventually. So yeah, this is a cast. Like I, it, it's interesting how they mostly went with, you know, people who are known for being funny and yet did not allow them to be funny. Yes. <laughs> that, that was one of my big takeaways. That was why, because honestly, Jordan, if they had not cast this many comedians or comedic actors, I wouldn't have known it was even supposed to be funny. <laughs> like, I really wouldn't have. Um, like, Jennifer Coolidge's character definitely brought some comedic relief, but I, yeah, I would have just, I would have just felt that it was a drama, <laughs> like a depressing romantic movie without the comedy, but because of the casting, and of course, some of the attempted humor, I was like, all right, this was supposed to be really funny. That that yeah. was what was supposed to happen here. And that was going to explain why so many things that that would explain why it doesn't really actually feel like it's about Jane Austen fans. Even. No, absolutely not. Okay, so Ricky Whittle, who's like most known right now for being an American god, who plays the one black one that's there, I thought that his Jamaican accent was terrible. And it turns out that he actually is Jamaican. So I'm not sure if it's because he's British, he's not really in touch with his Jamaican accent, or if he's playing a character 
who is supposed to be American, therefore is doing a bad Jamaican accent on per- I don't know what was going on, but I was shocked to find out that he was Jamaican because that accent was bad. Yeah, I had no idea he was Jamaican. Uh, AJ and I watched it together and we were both like, that is certainly an accent. <laughs> like, that it's is an accent good. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's... Okay, so the plot of this movie is that uh, Carrie Russell plays Jane. Jane is super into um, Jane Austen and specifically Pride and Prejudice and Mr. Darcy, the original Colin Firth Darcy, as as I call OG Darcy. And um, it's her entire room is covered in that shit. She there's a scene where she's supposed to be making out with the guy, but uh, the Pride and Prejudice miniseries is on, and she's watching that, and not paying attention to the guy. Which I actually like. I know that that's supposed to make her look bad, but that guy is like not that cute or interesting, so I didn't really care. Yeah, and then, I was like, I for sure done that. Not specifically with that miniseries, but just like watch something. <laughs> And she's got like a cutout of Darcy and like it. And then she has her best friend who is constantly being like, you're too into Darcy. You're too into Darcy. But the thing is, is that if her friend wasn't there, it would be impossible to know because she doesn't, she doesn't possess any real kind of knowledge or, understanding of just nothing of she doesn't seem to know anything no she doesn't bring yeah there's no fan energy like there's there's a certain energy when somebody is really obsessed with or excited about something and honestly i love that energy even if i don't know what they're talking about i think it's really charming she doesn't have any of that it feels like the movie was just put her in places and they were like okay you have these decorations okay you're gonna go to austin land but like her, the way her character is written, she doesn't talk about Jane Austen very much. Like she's just kind of, it's weird. It's weird to me because it wouldn't have been that hard to make her seem like a fan in an actual way. It doesn't, it also doesn't seem to be affecting her life. Like her friend who's played by Ada Field, who for some reason is not on the Wikipedia page, or if she is, I missed her. Um, it's just constantly just like, why are you such a fucking loser? Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> and, I, I think it, it needed more examples than that. I feel like that's one thing that would have helped is if we'd seen her actually out on a date, not just with a guy on her couch talking nonstop about Pride and Prejudice in a way that was alienating him or like her out in social situations dressed in Regency era clothes, you know, while they're at something very casual, like, but it doesn't do any of that. So we just see her room. And I mean, people can get as weird as they want in their home as possible. Like, that's fine. (laughs) You know, like, right. It's not like she, it's not like they're just like some amazing guys that she's missing out on. Like it would have made more sense if there was just like a guy at her office or like a guy at like a coffee shop she wants to hang out with who's like in love with her, but she's too like obsessed with Jane Austen to notice like that. Like, we have to see how it's affecting her reality in a way that is stopping her from falling in love. And we don't see that. 
And it's just, it's so, and she, and it's also just that Carrie Russell doesn't, I truly believe that Carrie Russell just needed to check at this time. Like, I don't believe for a second that she cares because even in the scene where she's basically spending her entire life savings to go to this, uh, she wants to go to this Austin land experience, which is like, like a whole like LARPing thing where you just like go through entire plot lines and stuff. She's supposed to be giving up, like, she's spending her life savings on this, and she just looks so bored. She does, <laughs> yeah. I I really did feel that phone-it-in energy from her, because, as you said, she's a great actress. I really like her. I know she can act, but she brought no energy to this. It was very much, you know, I'm going to come to the set, I will say my lines, I will make some facial expressions, and I will go home. And you know what? I understand that given the script, but as a viewer, it was very obvious. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is that like, I mean, there was a time when Carrie Russell could play like a, oh my God, I'm so optimistic person. And that time period was Felicity and that time is over. And so now she's more known for being, you know, serious, for being sarcastic, for being wary like you know it, it there are some people who can like hold on to that wow energy when they grow up and carrie russell is not one of those people and i don't think that that's a bad thing but she's just no. not the right person for this part because she just seems too smart and she's she was 36 when this was made and i do know yeah. that the movie like that was supposed to be part of it is like oh like this is a grown woman um but yeah i mean you don't don't cast a grown 36-year-old for this role if she's not going to bring that naive energy because it doesn't it doesn't work. Like what if it was like, like a Reese Witherspoon a- kind of actress oh, like Reese Witherspoon Reese- is going to have that energy until she dies and that's one of the most beautiful things about her is that she knows how to bring that energy. <laughs> yeah, Reese Reese Witherspoon could fucking bring it. Honestly, Sandra Bullock could have brought it. Yeah. Like uh, I don't know. Bring in Jennifer Goodwin. That's somebody who could always fucking like Jennifer Goodwin just like seems like a princess. And I think she played one on like that ABC show once upon a time or something. She was some kind of yeah, princess or, I, I or saw something. That. Yeah, she was. Yeah. yeah. You got to get somebody that's like bright eyed and just like, wow. Cause otherwise it's not going to make sense. And I even like- from the <laughs> What? I feel like so much of the movie is like Carrie Russell just like standing awkwardly in a gown. Like, like there's just so many shots of her just standing awkwardly in a gown. I mean, one of the issues that I had also was I think the cinematography was particularly bad. And this is a movie that is very visual. I mean, there's a meta period aspect to it, right? There's costumes that are very over the top and shooting it well would have helped make it better to watch. But I noticed so many shots that were just straight up weird. (laughs) Like they did not make sense or they had too many things in the shot and you didn't even know where you were supposed to look. It was noticeably bad. And (laughs) some of them, it would be like a shot where you could see Carrie Russell standing awkwardly and then you'd see other people talking, but it wasn't the kind of shot you imagine where it's like, Oh, we're, we're seeing her because she's left out. It would be like just a big room shot. I don't even know how to properly describe it with words and I don't want the listeners to watch it, but do you know what I mean, Jordan? Yeah. Like it's the blocking was weird. Like you never really 
sense. Because, you know, in a, these are supposed to be like big drawing rooms and everything. But, yeah, the sense of space was really bad. The framing was bad. Like, even it wasn't even like the the clothes were fine, but the way that they were lit just made them seem like it. they were at like Ren Fair. Like it just wasn't like it wasn't coming together. And the setting looks convincing. So it's weird that when they get there, it's not convincing. And there's so much of it that's not convincing. Like how like Jane Seymour isn't convincing as a villain. Jane Seymour who usually brings it in fucking like she brings it in wedding crashers like yeah. in a movie where you genuinely do not have to bring it she brought it and here she doesn't bring it at all like it's very clear that she's supposed to be a bad person but she never acts enough like she just seems too bored to yeah, be a she bad also person. feels i definitely felt getting a check energy from her like she's just kind of saying the lines and it's nice to see her but I don't feel like she's selling them. I don't like, I did feel like Jennifer Coolidge played her character. Like she, she brought it. Um, but she also had a more fun character. Um, so it made sense for her to bring it. Yeah. Jennifer Coolidge is, is interesting because yes, she really does bring it, but because nobody else is taking things as seriously as they should be, her being there, it's like causes like even more dissonance. Like her character only works if everybody's really into it, except her. Yeah, I completely agree because the whole point of her character is that she's at Austin land, but she doesn't really care about it. She just thinks it's fun to like dress up and hang out and flirt. But so her like saying irreverent things or making jokes or not knowing what they're talking about only works if everyone else feels very serious about it, but none of them do. I guess we should get back to the plot, though, right? Like, so Carrie Russell is obsessed with Jane Austen, and she wants to scrape together as much money as she can to take off her Austen land, the resort, where you are immersed in a romantic fantasy, Austen style. Um, So she, you know, her friend's like, there's no way. And she basically tells her friend, I just need to see. I need to see. I know I need to put this to rest, but I need to live out this childhood fantasy. So she arrives there and Jennifer Coolidge is the first person she meets. And Jennifer Coolidge is like all dressed up and Carrie Russell like says something about Jane Austen and Jennifer Coolidge is like, what, what book pride and what? And then Jennifer Coolidge is like, Oh, I'm just going because I want to wear the dresses. And then they (laughs) arrive there (laughs) and (laughs) Seymour plays Mrs. Waddlesbrook and she is like the the owner of Austin Land. She runs everything and she kind of controls everybody's experience. Cause basically these women go there and then there's these male actors who play their love interests, but they don't the women don't know ahead like which man is supposed to, you know, seduce her. So it's supposed to be this kind of mysterious, immersive theater thing. Yeah. Um and so Jane Seymour quickly makes it clear that Carrie Russell did not have as much money as everyone else. She did not get the, you know, platinum pack. She got the standard pack. So she's going to have a different experience than everyone, which, of course, yeah. is a nod at Pride and Prejudice and the classism in that. Um, and uh, Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords, he plays a a staff at Austin land. So he's basically playing a servant. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So those but that's like setting the scene for what is where the movie where the nothingness takes place. And uh, yeah, and then there's that there's that other woman who <laughs> Yes, the other that, woman. That other woman she might actually be doing the best job, but like <laughs> it's weird because like Sometimes she's very consistently critiquing, you know, actually what's on the page. And sometimes she's just freestyling like her weird, like when her weird voice changes and shit. I'm just like, what is that? I know I had a hard time being able to tell if she was actually taking it way more seriously than, say, Carrie Russell or Jane Seymour or and that and that was actually cringe because like nobody was on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or if she was doing a bad job, she's she's in the show Vice Principals, which I actually really like. Um, I didn't recognize her from there at first because it's such a different context. But yeah, I <laughs> I was like really trying to figure out the whole time if I thought she was doing a really bad job or a really good job, or if it even mattered. Yeah, none of it none of it matters. And you know what's interesting? I I think that the thing that was making me the most mad was that Carrie Russell was really upset that she didn't get the fancy package. But the thing is is that the heroine of a Jane Austen novel is almost never like at the top of the hierarchy at the beginning of the at the beginning of the story. So it doesn't make sense for her to want to be a rich lady who gets everything that she wants because that's not a Jane Austen heroine in the first place. And so I was so confused as to why she was so upset that she had to sleep in like the servants quarters and she had to wear like regular gowns. The gowns that she wears, those are the clothes that Lizzie Bennet would wear in that's real life. in thinking. I was like, you're actually way more similar to Lizzie Bennet now, which would mean that you would get Mr. Darcy. So why aren't you happy with that? I also didn't believe, and this goes back to just Carrie Russell's character actually selling the fact that she's obsessed with Jane Austen. I didn't believe that she wouldn't know about the different tiers of packages. I feel like somebody with that intensive a fandom, they would research everything about Austen land. They would know everything about Austen land before they arrived. It's weird for her to get there and kind of not know what's going on at all. And like, yeah, yeah. But I completely agree with you. It didn't make sense to me for her to be upset about that because like you said, in Jane Austen's books, it tends to be the, you know, less wealthy protagonists that, you know, win in the end or not even win, but they're the ones that we empathize with more. So, right. Like Jennifer Coolidge has the better package, but Jennifer Coolidge isn't interested in like, playing the game in that way (laughs) yeah like she's like i i like jennifer coolidge's character because i could see myself in her because i would totally go to some i would totally go to like an immersive experience for something i didn't know about just to like wear the outfits and eat weird food like that sounds fun to me (laughs) like just like go be disoriented so i really enjoyed her chaotic energy and it makes sense for her to want to like she's like oh i'm the rich one cool and of course the the other woman, Georgia King, she's kind of supposed to be the snotty one. Like that's her whole thing is that she puts down Carrie Russell and she kind of plays this classist character. And this goes back to the thing, like it's very hard to tell if her character is actually like that or is just being like that at Austin land. So that is where the meta layers kind of 
you know, merge, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I mean, so she has this whole romance with, with Brit. <laughs> I know. I, I, kept, I like, I could not take my head out of Flight of the Concords watching this. In fact, I was like, it's been so long since I've thought about Flight of the Concords. Um, that, that was, that was nice. I, I always I liked Flight of the Concords. Yeah, I was honestly shocked that Jermaine wasn't here because this is the exact kind of movie that he would be in. And he's also like in a lot of like Jared Hess and Jared Hess adjacent movies. And I I feel like it was just like, he was just like, I don't have time for this right now, but I'm sending Brit. <laughs> I can totally see that. I could totally see that. I also, I kind of wish both of them had been there, but maybe yes. that would have been like too much Flight of the Concords energy, but I would have loved if they both played servants and they'd fucked around with people. Yes, that would have been fucking amazing. Like so fun. Just, because the men are so the men in the movie are so flavorless. Like even the black one, because this whole thing is just that like I have a chest. Yeah. Um, he's like, <laughs> I'm attractive in case you missed it. Right, yeah. It's uh, and it's so okay, so I mean the setup of Pride and Prejudice is like Lizzie and Darcy have like a bad experience and then Lizzie falls for Wickham and she thinks that they're in love and then Wickham ends up being a liar and then Darcy and then you know eventually the Darcy's like wow like I really fucked things up and I gotta come and I gotta take care of this so Brit is like the the Wickham character um here and I don't know. It's so the nobly is, Yeah, nobly is the Darcy character, Mr. Darcy. Yeah. The thing about like her and Brit is like their romance happens so quickly and like with absolutely no tension or like anything at all. Like they're basically a couple and then like halfway through the movie <laughs> she's like oh you know what i think i'm gonna start playing this game and she decides it kind of out of nowhere and there's no reason for her to make this decision because there's nothing wrong with her relationship with brit like there's nothing there's no actual conflict there the conflict is that like he's upset with her for taking the thing too seriously which is stupid because that's where he works like this is you can't be mad at someone yeah like that's where he works and also like she paid a lot of money to be here so she might as well see what the game is like yeah and so it's just this weird thing where their relationship their relationship is also like so relatable and down to earth that it kind of it's just kind of weird that we have to go back to the role playing after it because it's like the movie like blew its load early and then there was nothing really left to do and then by the time she starts to get close to nobly i don't care like it's so also there's so many scenes with the role playing where it's like the big group like there's a scene where they're supposed to do a play and it's just chaotic and it nothing actually happens i i mean i guess a few of those scenes are supposed to assert some sort of growing bond between nobly and carrie russell and also show group tension right like georgia king aka the blonde lady is being mean or Jennifer Coolidge is being funny, but it doesn't add anything to the movie. I mean, I feel like this movie is not very long. It's only an hour and 37 minutes and it could have been 20 minutes shorter. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. The movie feels endless. 
endless. Yeah. So it feels so long. And also like nobly they don't have anything. Like, no, they don't. There's, there's no there. There's like no unless I missed it somehow because like my brain was betraying me. There was no conversation where they shared something deep enough for it to make sense. Where it was like, oh, you know what? They're t- they're getting real in a way that she did not with Brit. They are connected on this certain subject. There's a certain level. There's none of that. It's just like, oh, okay, now you're playing the game. And then he's like, yeah, like, and again, this is still in the game. So she's aware of that. Like, also her character feels very... Um, her character is such a weird combination of comfortable and uncomfortable around men, which I mean, that in itself, isn't that like shocking to say, cause who among us, but um, like in some scenes, she has this energy of someone who's never flirted with a man before. And other scenes, she's just like, yeah, let's have sex. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah. The character, there's just no consistency. Like it makes me want to read the book. Cause the book has to be better um like, yeah like, like it just <laughs> yeah I, I I also want to read the book because I'm curious maybe her character was supposed to be awkward in a way that Carrie Russell didn't quite play right I'm not sure um but it's very I just don't know anything about her character I know way more about Jennifer Coolidge and it's not that she's telling me more she's just being she's just being a person Jennifer Coolidge is giving a better performance. Jennifer Coolidge is because she's giving a performance full stop. Like she's doing something. We know who she is. It's so strange. There's just, there's honestly like 30 minutes of just nothing that happened after Brit and Carrie Russell, like after Carrie Russell is like, you know, I'm going to play the game. And, and of course there's supposed to be this kind of meta tension where he's like, Oh, okay, well I'm the servant and you can't be with the servant. It's like, dude, get over yourself. You're getting paid to be there. She paid to be there. It's fine. Oh my God. You, do you, the scene that really blew my mind, only one scene in this movie blew my mind. And it's when like all of the guys are together, like they're on break like they're not on call anymore and they're just like sitting around with all like these modern fixins and there are just women there that are just ironing their clothes and like giving them shit and we never figure out who those women are why they're there why they have female servants like does even like their job even require this kind of care like they're not doing a lot like who are these women yeah, I don't get it. Wasn't um, that weird? It was no, it was super weird. It was super weird. Yeah, and I mean, the problem is, you know, obviously our podcast, one of the things that we specifically critique is the romantic connections in these movies, right? And are they believable? Yeah. What parts work? What parts don't? But like this movie, I mean, not only does nothing work in my opinion in this movie, but the romantic connections it just feels like bringing two Barbie dolls into a room and like now they're married. Like it's very, it's the same energy as decorating her room with Mr. Darcy, but not having her as a character talk about Mr. Darcy. It's like, okay, she's talking to one guy. Okay. She's talking to another guy. So therefore she is now into this guy. Oh no. Will there be conflict? (laughs) um, And I, I think it's also, I don't feel like Brit, brought a little charm just because he's himself but his character still we don't know that much about him 
except the fact that he's kind of rolling eyes at the whole Austin land thing as, as a concept. But the guy who plays Mr. Nobly has even less to work with. No, yeah, there's just nothing here. You know what I was thinking the entire time, and I'm not saying like, you know, I will defend the rom-com genre with my life. Like I'm not trying to be like extra about it, but this, this is a rom-com made by somebody with absolutely no respect for rom-coms at all. And you can feel it in every scene And it's this kind of distaste that pisses me off because I just don't understand. Like, if you think that you're so much better than a rom-com, then make a good fucking movie. Like, what are we... (laughs) Yeah, if you think you're better than a rom-com, then make one better than one you've ever seen. Or fuck off and don't bother with the genre. I think that is an ongoing issue with the rom-com genre, actually, is that a lot of people just assume they can make one and and you'll look at their filmography and nothing else they have is rom-com and nothing they do again is rom-com and then they make something that feels like it doesn't care about itself and it comes through and then the rom-com genre is littered with these movies. And you know what's wild is that I actually think that her husband would have done a better job with this, but I also think that it would be even more disrespectful. <laughs> I agree. Like, it would have been funnier, but like, yeah, yeah, I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah, it's it, it's so, oh my God. It, I mean, the spoiler is she ends up with Mr. Nobly. <laughs> like, but not not until, like, at the end, she finds out that, like, that basically Brit was in on it too. And he was also acting and that makes her feel betrayed because like, what is real? And now she feels like, you know, both guys were faking and she feels actually stupid. And so she's like, okay, well, whatever, I guess I learned my lesson. So she goes to the airport and then, Oh, she also, so Jane Seymour's husband is really creepy. And for some reason, the movie decided to have this whole thing where he, like, basically harasses and assaults the women, like, corners them. And so Carrie Russell has a run-in with him, and she talks to Jane Seymour, and she's like, basically, like, what the hell? And then Jane Seymour reveals that both men were acting and Carrie Russell is really upset for multiple reasons, both because she found out Brit was acting, but also because of this creepy old man. So she goes to the airport and Jane Seymour is like, hey, Brit, you need to go to the airport and smooth things over because Jane Seymour is worried that, you know, Austin Land is going to get narked on or something in her perspective. Yeah, because she... It, it, yeah, this is such a weird movie for there to be like a, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell like a whole like sexual assault scandal. Like the movie does not have the range for that. And so it when it comes up doesn't. It's so it's like I don't believe that anybody and then in the end, like she was just like, Oh yeah, I was just fucking around. I'm not gonna tell. And it's like, but you actually were assaulted. So you're saying that you pretended to care about being assaulted just for this? And like, does it actually did you what you were <laughs> Yeah, that bothered me so much that it was like, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm cool. I don't care about my own trauma. I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, so yeah, Brit chases her to the airport and then Nobly chases Brit and Brit is like, 
lying to her to get her to calm down. And it's like, no, I really had feelings. And then Nobly arrives and he's like, no, he doesn't have feelings, but I do. And she's like, oh, you're both actors. And then she goes on the plane and then she gets back to her apartment and Nobly shows up there with her sketchbook. And he's all like, you left this. And I'm like, how the hell did this motherfucker find where she lives? Yet another stalker scene to add to the books. And oh yeah, she, oh yeah, she she draws, which doesn't come up until like the third act of the movie. Like if she did it, it's so subtle. It comes up in one that. scene. Like yeah. And then Nobly's like, oh yeah, you've been drawing. And it's like, okay, but like what why wasn't that? Why weren't we introduced to the drawing at the beginning? Yeah, it doesn't also, why is also, why is the drawing here? What purpose does it serve? I think the drawing is honestly a plot device because it was used only in a scene, in my memory, it was used in a scene when Nobly and her were bonding at Austin Land and then he brings it back when she leaves it. So I think it's just an excuse for them to end up together. Yeah. Just, wow. This is just, this is not a movie. I feel kind of like offended i like it's weird like it's not like a thing where i'm like mad but i just don't yeah i don't this is here's what i'm gonna say if you would like to watch a movie that like is that's like taking a Jane Austen framework and being very sarcastic about it i would say watch with Stillman's love and friendship. Like that movie is fucking hilarious. And it's not a direct adaptation of Austin. And so much of it is like wit's whole, like, you know, sense of aristocratic sense of humor and stuff like that. It's like, uh, that's what you want. That's like, that's like real scheming. That's like real fun. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Cause this, Honestly, and we've said this many times on the podcast, but I know that sometimes when we talk about how bad movies are, it can tempt people to watch them because they're like, oh, I want to hate watch. But this one is it's not even enough to hate watch. Like there's literally a third of the movie that's just nothingness in the middle. So, yeah, watch watch Love and Friendship and, you know, take care of yourself. We love you. Um, I hope you're getting little walks in the sun now that it's getting nicer out. Um, our theme song is by Clutch Douglas and you can find us everywhere. We love reviews. If you feel like leaving us some stars, if you're not a patron and you want to join our Patreon, we have lots of extra goodies for you. Um, I'm Bronwyn Isaac. I'm Jordan Searles. Bye. 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 Yeah.